Hello and welcome to Martian Driving Podcast 157. My name's Terry Frost and yes, I am late with the podcast. I do apologise for that. And what I'm going to be doing is just kind of going through what I've been watching, point out a couple of things of interest, just a kind of freeform ramble through my media consumption, a few Netflix anime series, um, a few movies, and just see where my tongue takes us which sounded a lot more carnal than I thought it was going to. Anyway, let me get the contact details out of the way and we'll get started. Martian Drive-In Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the paleo cinema cafe on facebook you can also email feedback to feedback paleo p-a-l-e-o at gmail.com you can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleo cinema for as little as a dollar a week uh, just be aware when you're listening to the podcast there may be some naughty words in it so if there are kids around you might want to listen to it later on Okay, so how has everybody been? Well, the past week of my life has been taken up pretty much with Quentin Tarantino with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I saw last Saturday with a good friend of the podcast, Morris, his family and a friend, at the Astor, the single screen Art Deco Cinema in Windsor, which is a little bit of a hike from my part of town, but it was good to do. And you can see a bit of that in the YouTube video review I did of the movie, which is such a second decade of the 21st century thing to do then i saw it again on monday with sally and she didn't like it because she doesn't understand tarantino and doesn't understand who george maharis is or any of those other people didn't get a laugh when robert goulet sang macarthur park on cliff's tv in his trailer all those other things but i enjoyed it i enjoyed a hell of a lot there's such a deep textured layering of pop cultural references from the 60s that i was kept happy and I don't think I missed any of them. Maybe a couple of the visual ones, because when I saw the movie at the Astor, the right-hand eighth of the screen was out of focus. So I may have missed something there. But I pretty much got everything else and loved it. The viewing was much better when I saw it at my local multiplex, which goes to show, keep your fucking projector in focus, Astor. But um, yeah, it was great fun, and I've kind of been deep diving into that in various ways. And the other good thing that happened around this part of the world is that the World Movies Channel that SBS runs, which is a free-to-air TV channel, continually showing foreign language films for the most part, also did a season curated by Quentin Tarantino himself of the movies that influenced Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I deep-dived into a bunch of those. So let me just get my wonderful little letterboxed list up. And I'll tell you what I watch. Now, I'm going to do two of these movies in the next Paleo Cinema podcast. I'm not going to go on too much about those. But I have already seen some of the movies that Tarantino curated for that channel. It's also on a streaming service we have here, which you can't access if you're overseas, called SBS On Demand. I suppose you can if you use a VPN, but it's a non-trivial task to do that. So... I have watched so far Model Shop, the Jacques Demy movie with Gary Lockwood in it, which I hadn't seen previously, and it also has a Nuke Me, 
Um, I saw that. Uh, the other three I've watched is I watched Easy Rider because I did that for the radio because of the recent and unfortunate death of Peter Fonda, somebody whom I've actually seen and met, and I have an autographed poster of on the hall wall in here in the shabby wonderfulness of our home. Um, so I watched Easy Rider once more. I watched Hammerhead, which is a 1960s Euro spy thing with Vince Edwards. And Tarantino has some interesting things to say about the costuming in that movie. And then I watched The Wrecking Crew, the fourth of the Matt Helm movies. The one Sharon Tate starred in. Also starring, of course, Dean Martin, Elka Summers in there, Nigel Green. Really nice cast. And also Nancy Kwan. So I watched that and I'm halfway through watching Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. But I'm kind of not enjoying that one because I don't like any of the characters at all. They just annoy the fuck out of me, to be honest. So I'm going to continue and watch the rest of that. But I don't expect to enjoy it very much because I know it's got a cop-out ending. But all of this Tarantino deep diving has made me want to go to the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles. But I probably aren't going to be able to because I don't have any money. At least not enough to piss off to LA and indulge a whim. But who knows what the future brings. The life's a mystery and it chucks random turns. I may well get there one day. So I've been kind of deep diving into that. Let me have a look at my Netflix and see what I've been watching there. I've been trying to do some Netflix anime, which is kind of fun but frustrating at the same time. Uh, one of the problems is that Netflix is doing its own anime. It's done a few of them. And some of them just aren't really good. Um, I watched uh, an anime called Kengen Asura which is kind of at the top end of the ones that Netflix does itself. It's about a kind of subterranean hierarchy of corporations where business decisions between corporations are made by the corporations putting up one supernaturally powerful fighter against another fighter from another corporation, and these guys bash each other up. But the thing is, it's done really well. The animation is not rotoscope, but it, what they did was they got a whole bunch of real martial artists to come out and they filmed them. And then they based the animation on the moves of those martial artists. So it's got a slicker and smoother feel than a lot of other um, fight scenes in anime. And it's kind of okay. I, I didn't mind that one at all. It wasn't as obnoxious as some of the other ones. The other good one, and take a list, make a list, sorry, is... Egretsuko. Uh, it's about a office worker called Retsuko. She works in an office where her boss is an arsehole and her co-workers are snipey and bitchy and stuff like that. And she comes to terms with that by doing death metal karaoke. Now, it sounds like it's not going to be fun, but it very much is. Um, everybody who's worked in an office knows that kind of dynamic. And she works in Tokyo. She lives somewhere near Shibuya because she's been seen in Shibuya a few times. And it's kind of cool. It's a comedy of manners almost and social criticism with death metal karaoke and anthropomorphic animals. For some reason, it's really hard to say anthropomorphic animals. There's another one which I wouldn't recommend called Seven Seeds, which is based on a very successful manga. Basically, a whole bunch of people... Seven people wake up and find they're in a post-apocalyptic world because a uh, meteor hit the earth and while it was on its way, 
the governments of the world chose certain people and froze them to thaw out after all of the hubbub of an apocalypse and catastrophe of the meteor strike dies down. It's set in Japan, but the characters are a bit funny and the whole premise of the thing is stupid because for a viable population, you need between 300 and a couple of thousand people in one place to make a viable long-term human population. You You need that genetic diversity there to make it viable long-term. Chucking seven people here and there around the place isn't going to do it. People will die out within about five or six generations, and four or five of which will probably be inbred to fuck. So, dumb premise and not very well applied. The animation's also a little bit stuttery, which is not a lot of fun. Let's see what else I've been watching as far as anime is concerned. I am an anime fan. I like it a lot. Uh, There is one called Revisions, which is a little more interesting. It's about a big circle section of Shibuya, which is one of the coolest places in Tokyo, which is the whole area is suddenly thrust into a post-apocalyptic future with giant monsters and all sorts of other problems. And so basically the whole neighbourhood of Shibuya has to adapt to this and try to find a way to come back to their time. That works well. It's got a lot of social satire and, and criticism in it. It's got some interesting protagonists. The animation is on point. So Revisions is kind of a recommend from me because I enjoyed it. And I like the way that uh, they used the real locations to great effect there. And I, I have been to Shibuya. And so some of the streetscapes they put into the animation are very familiar to me, including the Shibuya Scramble, the Hachiko statue of the, the dog at Shibuya, Shibuya Station, all that kind of thing are there. And it kind of works out nicely for me. I I really did appreciate the way that one was done. And the characters uh, are written quite realistically, and which which is something I really enjoyed. The other big news, of course, is Disney Plus has made its announcements on where it's going to be available, what it's going to have on its um, service, and how much it's going to cost. It's going to be pretty cheap. It's going to be like $9 Australian per month which is doable to most people as long as you've got a decent internet connection, which is not a guaranteed thing here in this brown, unpleasant land. But, um, yeah, I'll get it. I won't get it, for the obviously, for the Star Wars stuff because, you know, that's not my jam. And I'm not going to be wetting myself for The Mandalorian. But there are enough other things there. I mean, there's going to be all of those uh, Marvel Disney Plus TV series, so I'll get them for that. And they've also just announced some new stuff. So apart from the things they mentioned in the MCU Phase 4 announcement a couple of months ago, they've also today, or maybe yesterday, but you know, sometime within the last couple of sleeps, they've announced a couple of more things which are kind of interesting. Three things, in fact. First one is they're doing a She-Hulk TV series, and that's got a really give a squee to all of the She-Hulk fans, and that's going to be a bit of fun if it's done correctly. Um, It's one of those things that can be done quite dodgy if you're not careful, and you can kind of go too far into cute, not enough into realistic and um, kind of a positive image kind of thing. So that's one thing. The other thing is they're doing Ms. Marvel, which is the Kamala Khan version, which is kind of going to be a bit of a game changer as far as anything 
Marvel Extended Universe is concerned, and uh, that, that'll be a lot of fun to watch. And for me, the biggest squeeze, they're going to be doing a Moon Knight TV series. I've actually got the Moon Knight um, Funko Pop figure, which came out a few years ago. I picked it up quite cheaply because nobody knew who the fuck Moon Knight is. I did because I read the comics back in the day, so I know all about Mark Spector and the Egyptian gods and all those other kind of things. So it's going to be a bit of fun. It's kind of Marvel's take on Batman in some ways, but also somewhat different. And, uh, yeah, that one's going to be good. I'm look, Well, I can't really say it's going to be good, but it's one I'm going to give a go to because that's definitely my jam. And they are um, bringing out some characters that I like. I mean, there's also that buzz about Black Panther 2 having Namor of Atlantis as the bad guy. And that one is the one that got me squeeing. Uh, rumours are they're trying to get Keanu Reeves to play Namor, which is going to be kind of interesting. But um, I've been a Namor fan since the Grant Way animated TV series came out in the 1960s, about 1966, with John Vernon, who played the Dean in Animal House, doing the voice of Namor. That is just so in my nostalgic comfort zone. I can't tell you. Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The noble submariner rips up the deep to be buried in the demon. The neighbor of Atlantis is the prince of the deep. Yeah, fuck Arthur Curry. Namor is my king of Atlantis. I definitely think streaming services are starting to become really interesting. And because there is so much money in it, you've got such a instant international audience anybody that's got a decent broadband and a few bucks can get access to it and that i don't think it'll kill movies in cinemas in any way because we know from other media that media just finds a different position in the hierarchy of things it never quite goes away there are still people who are making wax cylinder recordings of music for instance but it's very much a niche kind of thing and things move down the hierarchy there are people that are still buying cassettes there are people who are still buying vinyl of course vinyl's getting a resurgence so that one's kind of going against the tide but i think big tentpole movies yeah um tarantino movies yeah i'll definitely go to the cinema scene mcu and maybe some um dc movies i'll go to the cinema to see if there's a film festival thing on that I can access, I'll go and see that. Or if I just want to get out of the house and go and see a movie and I can get a cheap ticket locally, which I can, then I'll go and see a movie that I might not have otherwise seen until it came out on a streaming service. So cinemas aren't going away anytime soon. And judging by the numbers of people who front up at them, I don't think they're dying out the way that they did, say, in the 80s, 90s and the start of this century the genre cinema i was thinking about this today while i was driving around genre cinema has gone crazy in the last 20 years it used to be a niche market and i was thinking back because i was thinking in the 1960s because of the war the tarantino mania that my head was subject to and i still have to do a abc radio thing about once upon a time in hollywood so i'm still in that head zone to a certain extent because I was thinking about that, I was thinking about genre films at the time, and they weren't all that common. Yeah, there were some really badly done horror movies, and there were occasional forays by major studios into things like Fantastic Voyage, and then George Powell kept trying to chug away 
through the 60s and 70s to get genre cinema made with very marginal success with things like The Power, Doc Savage and a few other things that he did. Time Machine, of course, being the high point for me in 1960. But it was a rare bird. It wasn't as common. It was done on television. There was television science fiction. We'd lost in space, land of the giants, all those Owen Allen things. Um, some stuff in the 70s as well. But it was mediocre. It was neither rare nor well done. Uh, it was a medium. <laughs> so, yeah, um, nobody understood the genre in depth the way they do now. And, of course, then we had that incident in 1977 which infantilized science fiction cinema for a few decades. But now things are changing. We're starting to get to a stage where, A, science fiction is taken seriously as a genre, and, B, it's starting to be done better. And that's kind of cool. One of the problems I have with it, of course, is that places like Netflix and streaming services are chucking a few million at various young filmmakers who are making some time travel stories, some of which are really good, some, most of which are shit. Again, Sturgeon's Law, 90% of everything is shit. But um, I think there's way too many dystopian science fiction stories that are all a bit same-same. There's too many time travel stories and parallel universe stories which aren't done very well and aren't done... Even I mean, you can do a parallel universe story quite easily on a small budget, but you've got to have the story. What they don't realise is you can have the big flashy concept where you know, parallel worlds exist. Big concept. Mind-blowingly large. It's such a broad thing you can do things with. But then they turn it into something a bit prosaic and ordinary and they don't really take it anywhere. Kind of large. I mean, of course you've got Man in the High Castle based on the Philip K. Dick but then you only get taken really to one alternate universe, and that one's a pretty broad concept one. Then, of course, in the 90s, there was Doorways, which was the pilot done by George R.R. R. Martin, which had some potential, and then that became Sliders, which, because it was on um, network television in America, was dumbed down and ordinary. It didn't really go anywhere to the extent that, say, a modern thing like Star Trek Disco goes. They were still underneath the thumb of network standards and practices. So, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of different science fiction subgenres that have the potential to really go some interesting places. But for the most part, they're not. Superhero movies? Yeah, absolutely. Superhero movies are going crazy gangbusters in the cinema, on streaming services, on network television as well. And they're telling diverse stories. I mean, you've got The Boys, you've got um, Doom Patrol, you've got the DC animation stuff, which is kind of telling stories of the pantheon of DC superheroes that nobody's ever going to chuck a $250 million budget and a whole bunch of stars at, and doing it quite well. So we've got this immense amount of riches and immense amount of choice to play with as far as genre cinema and particularly superhero cinema is concerned. But I really want to see some better ideas in some of these and we're not seeing them. There's just such a kind of gold rush towards making money from the new wave of science fiction genre works that there are a whole bunch of ordinary products coming out and you've got to kind of weed out the chaff and get to the grain 
of it. And it's not always easy to do because they will throw some advertising time at some pretty ordinary stuff. And, of course, the audience then has to try to figure out what the good shit is, what isn't the good shit. Um, and then Disney comes along, being the, which is the kind of media equivalent of the blob in the Steve McQueen movie, absorbing everything around it and just getting bigger and more powerful. And then they bring Disney Plus along, which has got some juicy content to it. Um, you know, there are going to be things I'm not going to watch on it, but then there's no streaming service that you're going to like 100% anyway. It really isn't something that'll happen because until and unless they do like a Terry streaming service where they show um, Sherry Cafaro movies alongside French New Wave cinema and old British Ealing comedies and really kind of creaky old Boris Karloff horror movies and musicals and spy movie, Euro spy movies in particular and all of the James Bond films and also a whole bunch of black exploitation stuff up to and including Dolomite. By the way, that um, Eddie Murphy Dolomite biopic coming out about Rudy Ray Moore, I am there for that one. Um, until they do that, there are always going to be stuff that just isn't going to be watched by me on any particular service. I've got my um, Netflix up on the screen here at the moment, and I'm looking at a whole screen, and they've got stuff from Shark Tale to Schindler's List on this one screen. And next of Clean with Patrick Swayze. I've never liked Patrick Swayze, by the way. Along with Girls Trip, which is which is something I recommend. Girls Trip is a good, funny comedy. Cargo, um, an animated version of The Little Prince, though I do really love the one that had Bob Fosse in it back in the day. Uh, let me see what else we've got on here. They've got that Noah one that Russell Crowe did that was really fucked up, the Aaron Aronofsky one, which was crazy. The Purge right next to The Smurfs 2. I'm just scrolling down their movie list, and it's totally fucking random. Let's see what they've got. Um, Four Brothers, Coach Carter, Awesome Wells and The Stranger, which is, anyone can put out because it's in the public domain. Um, let me see. Is there anything else up here that's at all interesting? Uh, let's see. King Kong, the um, Peter Jackson version of King Kong's there. There's just such a choice and there's such a diversity there that you can spend your whole life sitting on a commode and calling out for Uber Eats and never leaving your chair. It's um, a really crazy... To be a cinephile and a TV buff as well. It's just, you know, it's just like we're suddenly, we've gone from being hunter-gatherers who are searching for food and then suddenly a truck full of supermarket deliveries falls on you. It's just totally over the top. And at times I feel incredibly overwhelmed by it and wonder where things go from here. Where is the future of uh, the genres we love the horror the comedies the science fiction the fantasy where is the future of these is it going to be in things like continual iterations of disney products or is it going to be somebody coming from left field and doing something totally new and unexpected and mind-blowing i believe it's going to be partly the fact that we're going to embrace more of non-english language stuff more korean horror cinema china is going to be a big player in the media future of entertainment whether Donald Trump likes that or not it's a fact the wandering earth is a good solid science fiction movie 
and it's done tremendously well in a whole bunch of different markets. Though there have been a couple of other films that have been put out since, which had very large for China budgets and haven't done quite as well. And also the interesting thing is Indonesia, a studio in Indonesia is doing its own slate of science fiction-y and fantasy-based superhero movies. I'm just trying to find the item that I posted about that because I find it really interesting, which is within their own cultural context and their own limitations of budget and things like that, what they're doing is creating from the ground up their own MCU. And I like that. I want to see those movies a lot because different voices always make me feel good about things. They, they enrich me. Seeing things I haven't seen before and enjoying things that I haven't really done. Here it is here. Indonesia reveals their own MCU as the headline. And they're doing a whole bunch of different stuff. It's called the Bumilangat Cinematic Universe. It's got uh, a TV series called, a movie called Gandala. Um, Sri Ashi, Godam versus Tira, Mandala, Kala Setan, Patriot, Aquinas, which is their underwater one. Uh, let me just see if I can get some more details about this. The whole thing's going to be called the BLU, and they've got a slate of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 films that they're going to uh, be doing and they're all going to be popular um indonesian movie stars and tv stars and the first film from the blu will be gandala which is there is a trailer out i'll try to link to the trailer in the show notes and also malaysia's doing it as well there's two movies called bandag and sikakman so basically those things are coming in from the sidelines and they may well turn out to be a lot more popular than we expect as well i expect them to at least turn up on netflix and give us a little diversity there. But because of that international streaming ability and because you can go around the old mechanisms of movie distribution, there are some niches there that a whole bunch of other players are going to start inhabiting. And yeah, while you won't necessarily be seeing a lot of um, views in monocultural places like you know, northern Queensland here in Australia or some parts of the deep south in America, there is still that infiltration of these non-English language iterations of familiar genres that are going to be available. The, the availability is going to be there. It's just going to probably be a few articles, maybe a, a few YouTube videos and some word of mouth that's going to give them that little bit of oxygen they need to catch fire. So just check it out. Second Man came out in 2006. It's a comedy superhero film. Basically, it means Gecko Man. I'm going to have to find this movie now. It looks like it's mind-blowingly interesting. But, um, yeah, it's there are going to be those other players in there. And that's going to change things as well. And, of course, it will, in its own way, influence what the big players do as well because they may well have to play catch-up after a while because... To be honest with you, the American empire is on the decline in so many different ways. Uh, things are changing a lot. Climate's changing faster than we thought. Who thought we'd be in a world where there are forest fires in the Arctic and the Amazon rainforest is on fire as well, uh, where we get 20% of our oxygen? What are we going to do? Rich people will be, end up privatizing oxygen. 
So there are lots and lots of concerns there, and we're going to have to really get our shit together. And there, the rate of change in our society is going to accelerate enormously in the next 20 years. And that's going to be reflected in our genre of cinema as well. In the same way that the ascendancy of Trump in America is changing the way James Bond films are made. They had to work out how James Bond 25, which is now called No Time to Die, was going to deal with global geopolitics in a world where Trump's tweets shift billions of dollars around and and cause immense problems in economies and things like that. And also the other problem is, how do you do a bond with Brexit happening with Boris Johnson running the show? I mean, I know they did it with Margaret Thatcher running it when uh, Roger Moore was James Bond, but yeah, it's it's a problem there because geopolitics have shifted since Bond was created, of course, and since the Bond franchise's movie started. So yeah, weird times we live in. But I'm actually going to talk about one of the movies I did see. So 29 minutes into the podcast. I am going to talk about one of the movies I did watch, a genre film, called Mr. Vampire. It's a 1985 Hong Kong horror comedy directed by Ricky Lau and produced by Sammo Hung. And it's got my favourite kind of Asian monsters in it, besides kaiju and about five or six others. Zhang Xia, Chinese hopping vampires. Gotta love them. To Western movie viewers, they're kind of a combination of zombies and vampires, but they hop. But for me, they're kind of vampires. They're just a different sort of vampires. They're not just charismatic, sparkly fuckers who sleep with schoolgirls. They're, they're more like Christopher Lee in some of the Dracula movies. They're basically a feral, predatory force of nature. Gangster are really popular too because uh, one of the things I've got in my collection of many collections is four different Jiangshu Funko Pop figures which are now becoming rare and collectible, but which I'm not giving up for anything. If you ever see any Funko Pops that are Asian mythical monsters or anything like that, pick them up whatever they cost you because you're going to make money on them. Just a little side note there. So I love my little tiny Jiang Shi collection. So anyway, back to the movie, Mr. Vampire. Uh, in the story, Master Cow is a ma- uh, Taoist priest who performs magic that maintains control, control over spirits and vampires. I'm reading this from Wikipedia, by the way. Master Carl lives with two inept students, Man Choi and Chao Sung, where they live in a large house protected from the spiritual world by talisman and amulets. One day he gets an assignment from a wealthy businessman, Mr. Yam, to remove Yam's deceased father from his grave and to rebury him with the hopes that doing so will bring more prosperity to the family. The father was buried in an unlucky spot. When they open the coffin, Master Cal notices that the body is still intact, even though he's been dead for years. Realising that it's a vampire, Master Cal orders it to be removed from the house for further study and to be subject to spells that will prevent it from awakening. He works out that Yam's father died angry and his last breath became stuck in his body for years, causing him to keep alive and reducing him to the state of a mindless monster. That's about all you need for the plot line. Things obviously don't go right. Now, one of the things I like about this movie is it sets out the rules for vampires right from the start. There are vampires that are being housed, basically, in Master Carl's um, home. And they have specially treated parchments with with prayers on them attached to their forehead. Um, 
there are certain things you can't do. If you are anywhere near a vampire, they can't see, but they can smell your breath. So if they come near you, stop breathing. Uh, if you want to stop them from uh, coming around you, there are certain things you can do, one of which is to put um, uncooked sticky rice around on the ground because they don't like stepping on it. So there are all these different little kind of non-European rules for vampires which help the um, protagonists survive the onslaughts of various um, vampires, including Mr. Yam's father. And, yeah, they kind of work that into the comedy in a beautiful way. The other, there's some really nice um, production design in this one as well. There's the Chinese coffins, which are cylindrical rather than the usual Western coffin shape. I really shouldn't say usual because it's only in our culture where that's the case. The movie's also set at the turn of the 20th century, so there were starting to be some European influences in the area where the characters live, and there's a little bit of a kind of joke about Western tea etiquette in a tea shop, which is kind of funny. And you also find out which people are being Western-influenced and which ones aren't, basically by the clothing they wear. But I'll tell you the things that stop Jiang Xiu from attacking you, because I found a list here, which is kind of good. Any items made from the wood of a peach tree. I wonder if pear trees work as well, because I've got a Manchurian pear tree growing in my front yard. It's an enormous tree, and I love it. So I wonder if pear trees work, because I've got a whole bunch of sticks and twigs, so if I ever get attacked by Zhang Xiu in my front yard, I can probably hold them off. Uh, jujube seeds, which are a particular kind of seed. Fire is a good one too. The hooves of a black donkey. I have to presume that they're not still attached to the donkey. Uh, vinegar is one. The I Ching, as I said, uh, glutinous rice, which is sticky rice. Azuki beans, a handbell. And this is one they use a lot in Mr. Vampire. A thread stained with a concoction of black ink, chicken blood, and a burnt Taoist talisman. You also have the blood of a black dog. Again, I assume that the dog doesn't have to be wrapped around it. Axes, brooms, holding your breath, or dropping a bag of coins because the Zhang Xie will stop and count all the coins. So the more coins you can have, the better. Um, I'm pretty safe here in the man cave by that because I've got a shit ton of Japanese one yen coins. So if, if I ever get attacked by a Zhang Xie here in the man cave, I just drop about 150 um, one yen coins on the ground and I'm pretty much okay. So the movie has a lot of physical comedy in it. There's some really good acrobatics. There's a little bit of wusher action there, but it's not really taken seriously. But the wire work and stunt work on this are first class. Now, this isn't the first Zhang Xiu movie to come out of Hong Kong. Uh, the, in fact, there have been Zhang Xiu movies as far back as 1935. There was a movie called Midnight Vampire, sorry, 1936. Um, I couldn't find anything about that. I was actually looking for a copy of it. I was looking for some stills or even some um, video footage of it. Can't find a bloody thing, but it was there. Samo Hong brought the genre back with Encounters of the Spooky Kind 1 and 2 in 1980. And of course, he was a producer on Mr. Vampire. I'm going to have to go back and watch Encounters of the Spooky Kind because that's a lot of fun from what I recall. The second one was made in 1990, Encounters of the Spooky Kind 2, directed by Ricky Lau, who directed Mr. Vampire. Now, Mr. Vampire was a lot more successful than Encounters of the Spooky Kind for some reason. So much so, in fact, that there was a Mr. Vampire 2 
made a year after the first one. You can go down a rabbit hole with these kinds of movies. Hong Kong cinema is notorious for making tons of sequels, some of which have the same characters in them, some of which don't. Um, they're, they're just all over the place, really. There's no rhyme nor reason to it. It's all about getting out new product and making money, which, of course, um, is something that pretty much every different movie company wants to do. Ah, yeah, by the way, shout out to the protesters in Hong Kong. I'm definitely on your side. But back to the movie. Uh, Master Cow is played by Lam Ching Ying, who is much younger than his character. He's one, one of those old Taoist priests you see in this kind of movie with long white hair and enormous eyebrows. He died of cancer in 1996 at the age of 44, so when he was making this movie, he was in his mid-30s, but playing a character a hell of a lot older than himself, which is kind of a good thing too, because there is a lot of physical comedy there, a lot of acrobatics and Beijing opera type jumping around that he has to do in this. Uh, we've got Ricky Hui playing Man Choi, who's the ciliar of the two students, and is the one who's maybe less pretty than uh, the other one, who is... Uh, Chao Sang, played by Chin Sui Ho. Uh, he's the kind of guy who's the love interest to Master Yem's daughter, Ting Ting, played by Moon Lee. Now, Moon Lee is an actress who's still around. Uh, she was in a movie in 1989 called Devil Hunter. She got a third-degree burn. She was supposed to jump out of a window from a second-story building to evade an explosion, but because of the timing of the pyrotechnicians... She got engulfed in flames and got severe burns on her hand and face. I've seen pictures of her since then, and they've obviously done a lot of reconstructive work, but it kind of put the end on her career in the 90s. She did some TV stuff, but um, she really did have a, a hard time with that particular enterprise, Devil Hunters. I mean, who else was in Devil Hunters? I'm going to dive down the thing here. Um, nobody I know. Wikipedia is such a honey trap for people. You start looking up one movie on there and you go through links and you end up somewhere totally different and you want to see them all. There's a kind of monkey on your back aspect of being a film buff with this kind of stuff. We also get another female character um, played by Wong Xiu Fung playing Jade, a female ghost who seduces Charles Sang. And she's not necessarily a bad person, uh... Her ghost is kind of benign. I mean, apart from the fact that she seduced the guy, she's really not a malevolent ghost at all. She's a lonely spirit who wants to make a connection with somebody else. And, of course, that's totally understandable, uh, which is kind of nice. She's in there for no particular plot reason. But nonetheless, she is kind of ethereal and fun. She really does do a lot with not too much. Now, the movie was made by Golden Harvest, which is um, the great big company at the time. I saw so many Golden Harvest films back in the 70s and 80s when I was binging um, Hong Kong cinema. Every opportunity I got, mostly down in Liverpool Street in Sydney where there was a Chinese cinema, which was one of the few places at the time where you could see Hong Kong action films. There are a lot more of them now, and of course you've got all the other methods by which to see them. But it was a cre incredibly um, popular at the time. The budget in Hong Kong dollars was eight million five hundred thousand, and it made almost twenty one million. So they definitely did well with this. 
on which what looks like a fairly low budget. But then budgets weren't big in those days, particularly for Hong Kong films. They really did do a lot with very little. And this one definitely does. There's just such an inventiveness to the action sequences. Using the treated thread to keep away the Zhang Shi, using the sticky rice, and then finding out that the rice seller has given you a mixture of normal rice and sticky rice. And so you've got to separate the different grains out before you can use it to protect yourself against the vampires. Then you've got a um, lonely female ghost riding on the back of your bicycle while you're travelling back home from doing something. It's just um, wonderfully done and kind of there are moments of very great lyrical beauty in this movie which surprised me more than a little bit. Um, I was just thinking about Chinese theology as well. Chinese and Japanese theology worries me in some ways because the way it works, I know in Japan, but possibly in the Taoist tradition in China as well, your spirit leaves your body when you die and you go to a purgatory until all of the funeral rituals are done, at which time you go off to be with your ancestors. That's the bit I've got a problem with because a lot of my ancestors were out of cunts. And I don't really want to spend time with them. Yeah, I wouldn't mind hanging out with my mum and having a piece of cake and a cup of coffee with her and talking about old movies and stuff like that. But for the most part, I come from a long line of really nasty bastards. So going to some kind of afterlife where your ancestors are is not something I particularly want to do. So I'd rather stick around as a lonely ghost and sit on the back of someone's bicycle, if you ask me. So just to kind of wrap it up for Mr. Vampire, see it if you can. It's light, it's fun, but I, every time I watch a Wuxia movie, I get so impressed with the physicality and the precision time, even though they do um, play it back at 22 frames a second to undercrank the video to make things look a bit faster. It's still really great fun to watch these films. And to realise that, yeah, the people who did them are incredibly highly trained and terrific athletes in a way that I really entertaining. Plus, I love the Zhang Shi, so it's win, win, win for me. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. It's a bit of a ramshackle one, and I appreciate that, and I do apologise. But I've kind of been dealing with a lot of things here which are a little difficult. But I will be back up to speed next time around. In fact, next Paleo Cinema podcast, which will come out in a few days, I will be looking at Jacques Demy's model shop and also um, something else from the 1960s that was an influence on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in America because I'm on a bit of a roll with that stuff. So anyway, in the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch some interesting movies and watch some sad movies. Um, I'll be back with the Paleo Cinema podcast. I'll be back with the, the Martian Drive-In podcast a lot more in a lot more timely fashion than this one. And, of course, we have the credits. And I'm going to play something a bit unusual after the credits for you as well, so you stay for the post-credits sequence. Uh, the other person I've got to mention in the Patreon credits who isn't on there yet is Rich Chamberlain, who's also a Patreon supporter and also a good and honest and true friend of the podcast. So anyway, I'll catch you guys on the flip side and wait for the post-credit thing because it is a bit of fun this time around. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. 
Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the Technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. The song starts off, and this boy is writing a letter to Dorothy Dix. He says, Dear Dorothy Dix, I'm in the worst fix that I have ever been in. Says, just what does a boy do when right out of the blue she invites him in and says, Make yourself comfortable, baby. Yeah, now you can tell right there, friends, that he don't know nothing. Because he don't, because let me tell you something, it ain't out of no blue that she invited him in there. No, sir. She had everything squared away before she ever got him to the door. I've got some records here to put you in the mood. Yeah, see, she's got hearts of stone. That's a real good court record. In all of Roy Acuff's songs. The phone is off the hook so no one can intrude. See, the reason she took, took the phone off the hook is so he couldn't get no outside help. I feel romantic and the record changer's automatic, baby. Yeah, I think, friends, by this time that it's pretty clear with her feeling romantic and automatic record changers and everything that she ain't got that boy in there to eat no cake and ice cream. <laughs> all right, you all go ahead. Sweetheart, we've hurried through the dinner, hurried through the dance, left before the picture show was through. See, he spent all kinds of money on her that night. <laughs> he did. There ain't no telling how much he dropped at the Bluebird Cafe right by itself. <laughs> and after going to all of the trouble to take her to the moving pictures, she yanked him out of there before Tex Ritter shot the first ending. <laughs> And, and why did she do all this? To leave some time for this To hug a hug and kiss a kiss now Look out now, look out See, she said right there that she wants him to kiss her And she does, friends, she does What I mean to tell you, she wants him to flat plant one on her <laughs> off your shoesies, dear, and loosen up your tie. Yeah, do you notice that she never does call him by his right name? She don't know him. 
she don't. They ain't even shook hands yet. I've got some kisses here. Let's try one on for size. I'll turn the lights low while yeah, you Yeah, ho hold it right there, everybody. Hold it right there. Now, right here's his chance. He can either, while she's up cutting that light down, he can tip on out. Or he can do the real all-American Semper Paratus type of thing. And I'd do it if I was him. I'd put me a whole nother batch of records on that machine. I'd cut that light down one more notch. I'd kick off my two-tone perforated shoes. I'd get me an armful of that sweet thing and we'd both make ourselves comfortable. Yeah. 